0: With polyamory, I feel like the main foundation is the freedom to be able to create a relationship style that works for you and not just
1: stepping into monogamy because that's what everyone around you says is the right thing to do. Right. Non-monogamous relationships are usually functioning at a higher level of communication is what I see. And people are really working on what's authentically their wants and desires and how to meet those and their partners. So that's something that
2: has to be on the table for this to work. Welcome back to Immigranty. I am your host, Sadia Khan, here with our guest co-host, Shah Jahan. Hi, Shah Jahan.
0: Hello again, Sadia, for the second day in a row. Oh my gosh, (laughs) this
2: is so much fun and the weather is beautiful today.
0: It really is. It's it's beautiful here, too. Actually, yesterday I went for a, what was supposed to be a very beautiful and easy run on the beach after our last interview. Huh. And the first half of it was great, but the second one I turned around and the wind was like blowing in my face. So it oh. was an absolute horrible struggle, but it was still a great day. So you know, today
2: I went for a run and then I went for acupuncture. Ac-
0: that's amazing. Yeah. I've, I've actually always wanted to try something like that.
2: I mean, those small needles, they do magic. I okay. highly recommend it.
0: Okay. I'm somebody that hasn't even gotten really that many massages in my life, and it's actually, oh. you know, speaking <laughs> about the kind of, like, me and my uh, my partner, we've we've done a couple of these, like, couples massage things since huh. then, and, and I gotta say, I mean, it's pretty awesome. I get, like, uh, I get why people do this shit all the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> And you know what, I was thinking about season 13 the other day, and I find it especially fulfilling for me because I feel like I'm giving myself the permission to step out of my comfort zone and have conversations that I've never had before. What about you, Shah Jahan? How are you feeling?
0: I am feeling exactly the same, and uh, I think it's interesting that you specifically are mentioning that with regards to our guest today, who I might as well just go ahead and introduce now. Yes. Um, She is a, you know, you can say trailblazing a progressive and very compassionate approach towards relationships, a.k.a. the topic of season 13 of Immigrantly, (laughs) um, Jessica Fern is a psychotherapist who uses her practice to help people uh, move past some of their, you know, their like limiting reactive patterns, societal and cultural conditioning, into a secure attachment style. Attachment style is something I'm sure we will be asking her a lot about. Uh, Jessica is the author of Polysecure Attachment Trauma and Consensual Non Monogamy. I'm wow. sure we're gonna ask her what that means. Uh, the book takes its readers into an exploration of the relationship between attachment theory and consensual non-monogamy. So we're just so excited to have her on today. I think also for, you know, you're talking about comfort zones, definitely to expand my, not even just comfort zone, but maybe like worldview a little bit in terms of the conversation around like what non-monogamy is, polyamory, uh, you know, arguably we do live in a culture where monogamy is still like the norm, But And, you know, coming from Pakistan, I'm sure I don't have to, I can speak on your behalf, but like these things are changing. So hopefully we're going to be dispelling some misconceptions and helping our listeners understand all this a little bit
2: more. I am so excited. So let's get started.
0: Yeah, let's kick it off. Here we go.
2: Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on Immigrantly. We are so excited and we have a lot of questions for you. But we'll start with your book. It's called Polysecure Attachment, Trauma and Consensual Non-Monogamy, which came out in 2020, right?
1: Yeah, October 2020.
2: And I'm really excited to delve into the book itself. But just to have our listeners on the same page, let's get some definitions out of the way. (laughs) So can you define polygamy, polyamory and non-monogamy for us? There's some big differences.
1: So polygamy is
2: historically one man with several wives.
1: Polyandry would be one woman with several husbands. But in polygamy, those wives do not have extra partners, their own partners. Everyone's focused on, you know, the one partner of the opposite sex. Polyamory means poly meaning many and amory meaning love. People are engaging with actual multiple I'm-in-love-with-you partners. And those partners might share each other or they might be completely separate. There's many different ways that that can look, right? But it's not just sexual. It's really about being in love experience with someone. And sometimes it's not sexual and it's just about being in love with more than one person. And then non-monogamy is sort of the umbrella term that covers a lot of different ways that people are... Consciously, intentionally having
2: more than one romantic or sexual partner. How would you define monogamy?
1: Yeah, so monogamy also has probably different ways to define it. I mean, most simply, it's exclusivity romantically and sexually with one person, right? That I do not have any other sexual or romantic partners. Monogamy also has a historical context of where it came from and more of the ownership of female sexuality, <laughs> so that we can know who, you know, paternity wise, who does a man pass his land down to, which son, and things like that. So, you know, monogamy also means an institutionalized way of privileging a couple and a nuclear family and all the privileges that come with that financially. Economically, legally, and so on.
0: Along those lines, too, what are some of the maybe misconceptions that like non-poly people have around marriage and that kind of stuff? You know?
1: Yeah, right. So people that are married legally um, can open up and be polyamorous and have more than one partner, or have more than one what they consider marriage, maybe from not a legal standpoint but a ceremonial commitment standpoint. That there has been like a commitment. life type of thing. People can be married and polyamorous for sure. And yet many people who are polyamorous are deconstructing traditional marriage and really questioning it, right? And so even if they do decide to get married, it's going to look different.
2: Going back to your book, Jessica, you talk about attachment styles and I was listening to your podcast interviews and it's just so fascinating. What I really liked about how you approach attachment styles is that you talk about how they can evolve and every person at different phase in their lives can experience different attachment styles, right? Can you talk a little bit about different attachment styles and how they apply to polyamory and also monogamy a big question
1: <laughs> the part two of that but you know the the traditional attachment styles is broken up into four styles and it's more secure attachment where someone is able to be in close relationship with people and feel okay right they enjoy connection and they can also be apart and they feel okay in themselves they know how to do connection and separateness so there's more of this interdependence there. Then there's three different insecure attachment styles. And one of them is more withdrawn. It's called dismissive or avoidant. It's sort of the pull back, right? Still wants to be in connection and relationship, but up to a point. Tends to be labeled as the lone wolf or the island, right? When things get too intense, I'm going to take a break or I might shut down, right? I want to avoid sort of conflict and things like that. Um, and like I can take intimacy to a point, Then the other side of that spectrum is sort of what's called anxious preoccupied, where there's a hyper focus on the partner and the other, and sort of this real, you know, preoccupation with, are you there for me? Do you love me? Are we okay? Am I enough? Are you enough? (laughs) Right? Is this predictable and all of that? So there's a lot more anxiousness that someone will feel and experience opposed to that avoidance style, which tends to shut down their attachment needs. Right, The yeah. anxious preoccupied is always trying to get their attachment needs met. And then the final one is um called disorganized or fearful avoidant. And it tends to vacillate between the two that I just mentioned, where there is both the desire to move towards and attach, but there's a lot of fear in that process. And usually that comes from either a childhood history or even an adult history of my attachment figure was safe and danger, unsafe and dangerous at some point. So I want to have closeness, but my nervous system reminds me, danger when you're close, right? You're going to get, you could potentially be harmed. Yeah. So that's a very broad overview. But yeah, we can see how we have these different attachment styles, maybe with our different caretakers and parents or siblings throughout hmm. childhood hmm. And then with different partners, we'll have different attachment styles.
2: And sometimes even within the same relationship, it can change through the years. Oh, so it's not restricted to your partners only. It could apply to any other relationship.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of, you know, the blind spots of sort of typical attachment theory is they just tend to solely focus on the couple. I think there are really good studies that have shown that it is more intense our attachment bonding in our romantic relationships, but we all probably know people that are deeply attached to their adult friends or siblings. That would be a primary attachment figure to them, so I don't want to exclude those.
2: So Jessica, I grew up in a different country. I grew up in Pakistan and I am always fascinated by cultural nuances that play into everything. So I'm curious to know in your practice, have you come across instances where the relationship between attachment styles and non-monogamy was deeply impacted by cultural conditionings? And sometimes I i assume you are unable to understand a certain culture. So how do you navigate that space then?
1: Yeah, I ask, you know, I don't pretend mm. to know what I don't know, right? So I ask, yeah, what did your family teach you about romance, about love, about marriage? What are the roles and expectations of being a man and a woman? And that there might only be a man or a woman. There's nothing on a spectrum in between, Right. So really just asking people, what were they taught through their culture? And then what, how was monogamy or non-monogamy seen? I mean, every culture does have non-monogamy. It's just how explicit or how clandestine was
2: it? (laughs) That's such an interesting point. Absolutely. Do you have an example of someone from a culture where it was complicated to navigate the space?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of a Hasidic Jewish
2: couple that I was working with and in their specific
1: way, It was actually even often, it was um, an honor that they would even work with me as a non-Hasidic Jewish person. (laughs) But um, divorce was not an option at all. That wasn't going to happen. And there were people within their community that um, could cheat. Like there were certain avenues that cheating for men was um, accepted. This isn't, of course, I'm not talking about the entire Hasidic Jewish community, but within this specific you know, subculture for them, that certain husbands could have certain extramarital experiences, and the wife had to accept it, right And that and this wife was not wanting
2: to accept that. It was
1: really difficult.
2: Since it's not consensual, it would not classify as polyamory, right? Right, right. In this case, it was
1: non-consensual and non-monogamy for them.
2: And are there any do's and don'ts of how to approach this conversation with your partner?
1: What I say is caveat this conversation with, I'm not asking us to make a decision. I just want to have an exploratory conversation. Because there can be a real panic when you think that your partner's like already unilaterally decided to completely change the structure of the relationship that you've agreed to. Like that's intense. So just to be like, hey, I just want to explore certain things with you, you know, and brainstorm together is a good way to start, you know, and and of course, um, not having already acted on it by yourself is a better way to start, you know, to include your partner in what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're needing, um, not to do this to fix your relationship, right, not to do it to escape your current relationship, right, but to do this because it's really what
2: you want to expand into, can you expand on that a little? What do you mean by that? Because I, I really like that concept. Right. It's kind of like when a
1: couple's like, we're not doing great, let's have a baby and it will make things better. And like you're just like, oh, that's a disaster, right? And that's a train wreck waiting to happen. You don't have a child to make a relationship better. You have a child because you want to have a child, right? <laughs> right? So similarly, like if your relationship is not, What really working in the way that you want, it's not fulfilling or it is really toxic and has a lot of conflict. Like, non monogamy is not the life raft for that. That's like you have to figure out how to, you know,
2: fix this relationship, so to speak,
1: or move on from this relationship.
2: Right. Yeah. I love that. And that's so true because non monogamy is not an outlet for that. Right. It is, it's a lifestyle that you choose, give yourself permission to. Exactly. There's a paradox
1: that often when people do open up from being monogamous to non-monogamous, like in a couple, it does it can really improve that original relationship. Like often people, you know, share that, oh, there, our sex actually got better initially. Like we had a peak in our sexuality together. And, you know, so it, there's a paradox there, too. But I wouldn't do it with the intention of fixing the primary relationship that you're starting from.
0: Jessica, you have mentioned in some of your previous interviews that you yourself identify as non-monogamous, you know, and Sadie and I are both, for example, in pretty committed monogamous marriages. How did you discover that you were polyamorous?
1: It's been a several staged approach, you know. Um because there were times in adolescence where it just sort of happened, like in the subculture that I grew up in, like Everyone got drunk at 16 years old and kissed a few people in the basement of the house. You know, like there was those sort of non-monogamous, like light (laughs) experiences that were just sort of normal for them, you know? Um, So that was part of it where it just was like, oh, things like that are okay, you know? And then that allowed some of those desires to be there. I think often so many people might have these desires, but they just don't even allow them themselves because you know the structures and culture they're in just clamp that down quickly. you know, or you'll be shunned in so many different ways and not accepted if for those desires. So I think I was fortunate to have access to alternative culture. I grew up also, my mom is like a theater person. So I grew up in the theater. And which was primarily like gay men of the 80s and 90s. And so, and that group that, you know, it wasn't even being called polyamory then, but it was, there was a lot of non-monogamy that was part of the norm of that culture. Right. So I just would see different things um, growing up in New York City. Um, but um, as I talk about, you know, because I did have a monogamous marriage and opened up that later, and it was really reading the book, Sex at Dawn. That was just an amazing catalyst um, as they sort of break down a lot of the cultural narratives about, especially female sexuality. <laughs> it just like gave me even more permission to be like, oh wow, like I know I have this capacity to love more than one person, and I actually want to. And so once that, my like, I was given permission to allow that, I could then enter into dialogue with my husband at
2: the time. Jessica, I want to go back to what you said about having conversation with your partner, right? Um, I am curious to know, was it in line with what you were expecting it to be? Or were there any surprises? I assume it wasn't something that both of you discussed before you got married, right?
1: Yes and no, because I'm not straight. We had discussed like, okay, I'm getting married to a man and, and this might not work for me over my lifetime to be just with one sex. Right. And so we had talked about that. And then there was a period of time that someone was interested in him and it was sort of like, well, we explore that. And it didn't wind up happening. So it kind of just gets swept away with life. Um, But we did have aspects of even our exclusivity that were less traditional. Like he had two very close female friends that he would like go see them. They lived in a different city and like sleep over, you know, and in like a regular monogamous marriage that would have like not been allowed, you know, or similarly, I had some male friends or female friends that is like, yeah, there's a level of intimacy here that's very deep, you know, um, So there are things like that. But in terms of did I expect, it's kind of a yes and no. Like, I knew he wouldn't be reactive. I knew he would be willing to at least entertain, like, let's just brainstorm. Like, and that's what we did for like a few weeks. We just took walks. And those conversations were great. And so then I thought, okay, we're going to do this and it's going to be easy. And that's where it absolutely wasn't. And some of those things I couldn't, just no amount of talking could have, you know, we could have prepared for things we wouldn't have expected.
2: So I am thinking normally we hear that monogamy is not even natural, right? It's not natural state of human existence. I think it's case by case basis, right? Because if I look at myself, I don't have a frame of reference for non-monogamy. But I also think at the heart of who I am, it would be very challenging for somebody like me to experience non-monogamy. At the same time, I am open to exploring the definition of monogamy itself, right? So is having crush on somebody while you're married non-monogamy? I mean, there are some people who have such narrow definitions of monogamy it's like oh you can't have crush on anybody oh you can't even look at somebody okay, you're not dead you're just married <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly i agree i don't think non-monogamy is for everybody um at all it is a case by case just the way that like monogamy is not for everyone who feels non-monogamous and, and vice versa right i think what matters with monogamy now though is that we're choosing it because that's what we feel most aligns with ourself versus I'm just doing it cuz that's how you do relationship and that's what is supposed to be.
2: I love that. I love the the idea of giving yourself permission to be monogamous or not to be monogamous. Exactly. And same thing, you know, I have a 7-year-old
1: son. He very much in this moment is gendered male. That's you know, but we just say it's very normal now when we say, "Oh yeah, one day you might be wanting to kiss a boy or a girl." <laughs> Or a boy and a girl, you know, like we just allow those options so that he can really choose what feels right to him.
0: Can I ask how approximately how long did your monogamous only monogamous relationship last?
1: Everyone jokes because it was like six or seven years. So they're like, oh, the seven year itch. (laughs) 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 I don't think it was just the seven year itch. But yeah, that's that's about how long it was. Yeah. But even since, you know, there's been times where just because I identify as polyamorous doesn't mean I always have multiple partners, right? Sometimes I've had no partner (laughs) or I have had, you know, okay, I'm not having a sexual partner at the moment. I'm taking a break from certain aspects of a certain relationship or I've done polyfidelity where it's like I've had two partners, but I've been closed for a certain amount of time for a certain reason.
0: Oh that's interesting actually I didn't know about the term polyfidelity
1: yeah It's more than one partner but we're close to each other and polyamory isn't always this free for all open bar open buffet I'm constantly dating <laughs> like sometimes like great I've got two partners I'm close with them that's what works right now you know and a lot of people because of the pandemic are exclusive to one partner even though they previously were non-monogamous together and still want to be. You
2: know, I've heard there is some degree of hierarchy in some instances. You could have a hierarchy of where you have one primary partner and then the other one may be secondary. Does it cause any friction and how do couples tackle that? There's many different ways that people can do hierarchy
1: or non-hierarchy, right? And so sometimes, yes, there's hierarchy where there's You know, one couple, we are primaries, and anyone else that we date um, is secondary to that first person. And for some people that are in the secondary position, sometimes they don't mind that. They might have a primary partner, too, when they're married, and that's like, they're like, this is a perfect match. This is what I have time for. Or they're not married, but that's what they actually want. They don't want the responsibility of a primary partnered relationship, right? But for a lot of people, a secondary position status um, can be really hard, difficult, even traumatizing when you don't have a say in, or you don't have a full say of what happens in your relationship, where there's another person whose schedule or preferences or needs are being considered over yours. It's really hard. And so because of this, it's you know, this is a, a big hot topic that still is ongoing in the non-monogamous communities, you know, there was a movement, is a movement towards what they call non-hierarchical polyamory, where, you know, more your partners are more on an even playing field, or at least everyone has a seat at the table. What I still like to bring to those dialogues is, though, is that there still can be um, aspects of hierarchy, like time or Certain partners live together and or certain partners have children together or they run a business together. You know that certain aspects of relationships get prioritized, but that doesn't mean new people can't come in and actually feel like they have a full relationship.
0: What are some of the characteristics of poly relationships that work well for people where it's something that has been sustainable, you know, and something where some of these things that we're talking about like don't happen?
1: I mean, it it can be so, like, for everything I say, there can be a completely opposite example of how that works in the other direction, you know? But some basic foundations are just like consistent, honest, loving conversation and dialogue, right? (laughs) That, like, really non monogamous relationships are usually functioning at a higher level of communication, is what I see. And people are really sharing, like, working on what's authentically their wants and desires and how to meet those and their partners. So that's something that has to be on the table for this to work. It works really well when metamores. So that would be people who are dating the same person, but not dating each other, right? So if you had a, another, you have a wife or a husband, right? And then you have another boyfriend or girlfriend or partner, right? And they get along. (laughs) That helps a lot, right? And of course, I've seen people do their monogamy well, where everyone is more parallel and separate. But when you do have metamors that really like each other, and you have group chats, and everyone can communicate about scheduling or trips, or, you know, and some of that's separate, and some of it's together, it becomes sort of, more of the ideal of non-monogamy where it's like, oh, there is more love. There's more support.
0: It's fine. I mean, it's funny that you're saying communication and, you know, <laughs> getting along with friends, basically, which is not any different from any. It's just so funny.
1: People in monogamy can stay married without those things.
0: A hundred percent. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: In monogamous relationships, communication And honesty can be challenging at times. You feel like you just owe it to your partner to be monogamous in every possible way. And sometimes it just runs in opposition to human nature as we were talking about this. So I think honesty is something that I am really fascinated by in polyamorous relationships. But Jessica, I'm curious, what if one partner is polyamorous and the other one is monogamous?
1: It does work. I see it enough, I've worked with it, Um, and it doesn't always work. Sometimes it's an absolute deal breaker, you know, and and typically the more common case is it has been a monogamous couple and one person says, oh, I think I'm actually like uh, polyamorous by orientation, like this is really who I am, and the other person is like, I don't think I can do that at all, (laughs) like I feel very monogamous by orientation, that's how I'm wired, what do we do, you know? Or sometimes it's someone who's just like, I would never initiate this, but I'm like willing to give some aspects a try, you know? So sometimes it is called the monopoly pairing where the monogamous partner realizes I love you and to be in a relationship with you, it now includes this aspect of you. And either I could, if it truly doesn't work for me, we have to part or I'm going to give it a try. And a lot of dialogue about, you know, what does that look like how will it work what does each person need you know to feel enough connection and also enough freedom
2: I was talking to our content writer as we were prepping for your interview, and she is somebody who is in their early 20s. And she mentioned something along the lines that it is also generational because probably Generation Z, she's part of that, um, is not hung up on the institution of marriage itself and the idea of having non-monogamous relationships is pretty normalized. And I was wondering if you've seen that in your practice. I think it definitely
1: has a generational impact. I mean, as we've sort of seen the failure of marriage, right? I think, you know, seeing the peak of divorces in in the 80s, you know, and this all like came after, you know, the sexual revolution and the empowerment of more of an empowerment of women, it's like so many people now have been raised with seeing like, oh, monogamous marriage actually doesn't work more than half of the time, you know, and for the ones that stay married more than half of the time, there's actually cheating. So how many people are actually being monogamous is called into question, right, and and seeing how can we maintain relationships over time in a way that actually works. So there definitely is a generational trend that's happened. So, you know, there's a lot of enmeshments in monogamy. There can be a lot of codependency, you know, a fusion of my identity with yours, or you complete me, you know, you're my other half. And that sometimes works in monogamy and is sweet. It In the non-monogamy process, it really does not work well at all. And so people are often forced into a process of differentiation. Right? And monogamous couples go through this too, but sometimes they don't, Right, whereas polyamory will like push you into differentiation. Oh, I have to be my own person here and, and respect and allow you to be your own
2: person here. I wonder if polyamory would work better in individualistic societies versus collectivist societies. There's some
1: examples of places where there are more communal cultures, but they're less patriarchal. And, or they're even more matriarchal. And then there's higher incidence in some of those um, cultures of non-monogamy. So I think it's, it's probably cultures that have done the process of, of deconstructing and challenging patriarchy, is what I would say. Because individ- a lot of people who are practicing polyamory, it's actually, it is a political, sometimes a political statement or opposition to individualism right to this critique of the individual and the nuclear family and it is an attempt to create more of what like people call polycules more of a network of Mm. love and connection that is more community-based people will say what is your polycule like and you go okay yeah i have this partner who is that partner and that partner and then there's me and this person (laughs) and like how do you draw it out you know how do we all connect
2: Jessica, as, as you can see, Shah Jahan and I are approaching this from a place of curiosity and fascination. Both of us are sitting there and we're like, oh my gosh, we're learning something so new and so fascinating. So I want to go back to attachment styles. You also talk about how attachment styles seem to be getting roots in factors in our childhood, right? You've, you've talked about this. Um, in your opinion, do you think it is possible to raise secure children from the get-go? How do we instill certain attributes or values in children so that they are secure in who they are?
1: We can absolutely like start off on a good foot, you know, with our own children, and it's really about being available and responsive and emotionally attuned. To our children and I love the research shows it's not 100% of the time (laughs) right but it's and it's going to vary child by child depending on their needs and their temperaments and all of that their specific nervous systems like how much and little do they need um but enough of the time for that child they feel like when I'm in danger or when I have a need um my caretaker my parent is there for me in an attuned way you know That they feel like they are gotten, you know, is is one of the phrases that Diane Poole Heller used, like the feeling of being gotten by somebody else.
2: And sometimes it may just be intrinsic to a person in terms of how secure they are or how they value people around them, right?
1: I don't know if it's intrinsic. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's actually intrinsic.
2: Or I think. So you think it's more nurtured? Yeah, yeah.
1: I think. I mean, I think we do come into the world expecting to have a secure attachment experience. And that's not always what we get, right? So the environment we grow up in definitely greatly impacts our attachment capacities yeah, and experiences. Yeah. And as I say, just I always want people to hear, but regardless of where you came from, you can always have what's called earned secure attachment in adulthood. You can consciously work on healing your past attachment history and become more secure in your attachment. It's not static.
2: Yeah, I mean, like anything else, right? Um, Jessica, for people who are listening to this conversation and want to know more about polyamory other than your book, of course, <laughs> what other resources are out there that they can look into? There's,
1: a, you know, a good handful plus a growing number of books. There's many, many different podcasts, um, Sex Out Loud, Opening Up, uh, More Than Two, uh, the Multi Amory podcast or some of like the obvious one, The Ethical Slut. Uh, Sex at Dawn, you know, these are like now considered some of the classics. But I mean, even I'm now that I'm published, I keep getting new books that now I'm being asked. And, and they're mm. great. You know, they're coming mm. out. And I'm like, this is fantastic. We need more
2: and more of this. In the end, I'm going to ask you something different yet connected (laughs) this is something that's at the heart of Immigrantly and I ask all my guests and you can define it in the context of what we discussed or in general form if you were to define the US in a word or a sentence how would you do that? Confused (laughs) (laughs) I like that that's a
0: great answer
2: and where can people find your book is there a particular bookstore that you want people to go to if you go to Thorntree Press, my
1: publisher, there's actually a list, you know, like different buttons to press of, of all the places that you can. And there's alternative, you know, book vendors that are there as well. So for those that want to support, whether it's the corporate or the less corporate, you have options. So I'd say go to Thorntree Press. Thank you, Jessica. This was so good. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much.
2: The Immigrantly Podcast is produced by Kylie C Roberts, Eliza Kazmi, and me, Sadia Khan as the executive producer. Today's episode was written by Sarah Doe, edited by Bronte Cook, and produced by Kylie C Roberts and me. With help from Asad Bhatt from Refillion Media. Thank you so much for listening. Can't wait to share yet another interesting conversation with you next week. Until then, take care.